Welcome to JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigel and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. Thank you for joining us. My name is Ellie Bass. I run something called the Jewish Family Institute. Um, we basically, you know, when it's not COVID, we're running programs all around the city. We use about six or seven different locations around Toronto, and we run programs for families regarding parenting, marriage, social action, getting families involved in their Jewish community, um, and also finding ways to bring uh, psychology and Torah together in a way that supports families to be stronger, be healthier, and more informed. Um, I'm so excited to have Avram Natigal with us today. Um, he is Aside from being one of my favorite people, he's also one of my favorite people to have come and speak for the JFI. He is an author of three books. If you haven't had a chance to check those out, I highly, highly recommend them. Um, we will make sure at the end of this conversation to say where you can find out more information. Um, and he's also a therapist here in Toronto with a very busy practice. Um, we are delving into our uh, mutual nerdy passion for 80s and 90s uh, teen flicks. Um, you'll know you're in trouble when we start talking about music. Then basically we're going completely off track. But until then, we are going uh, to keep our focus as best as we can on uh, the parenting. And we're starting this week with Ferris Bueller. So um, Avram, do you want to kick it off and just tell us how we got to this project? How did we even start doing this? I think, for, can you hear me? Yep, totally. Okay. I think a few years ago, I mentioned to you that um, I was curious about John Hughes films, something that I grew up with. Um, and we shared a passion for, uh, we're, you know, we're the same age, and I think we saw the films in the, the theaters, uh, the original films. And I was curious as a family therapist, um, uh, the, the impact of the parents on the kids. Whenever I heard discussions about John Hughes films, The Breakfast Club or Pretty in Pink, it was always about what was happening in, in the adolescent mind. Um, and this is sort of true if you work at any of the big agencies, CAMH, and I've worked at all of them, and everything is very sort of um, individual focused. What's happening internal to the teenager, what, the, you know, it talks about the teenager brain and this. Um, I've always found it to be more helpful, actually, to think about the context in which teenagers uh, grew up in. And I think John Hughes, uh, who not only is a great filmmaker, but he's, he's very astute psychologically. I think he had understanding that parents had an, a cr critical role in the dynamics in a family. And I was curious, what, what if we talked about these films, or I wrote a blog about these films, trying to address what, what John Hughes was alluding to, which was the dynamics in the family and that what creates a geek or what creates... Right. Um, you know, in, in Pretty in Pink, for example, what, what creates a situation where a young woman's mother leaves the family and she's raised by her dad? Um, how does that impact her choices of partner and relationship? How does it impact her, her peer relationships at school? Um, and, and then I thought, well, I think it's useful for parents. I work with a lot of parents with teens to sort of understand their role and how impactful their role is. Um, and not just as teenagers, but I think a lot of parents, I hear this quite a bit in my practice, the parents sort of see their role with teenagers as something that starts and at but at eight, the age of 18 or 19, they wipe their hands clean and hopefully they're alive and they send them off into the world and their job is done. And that is completely false. Um, the role of a parent continues as a wise elder throughout the young adult years. And then as grandparents, um, the role is never done. Um, and I think that it's a myth that what we do with our kids when they're teenagers, we just wipe our hands clean and hope for the best. It, that's just not how it works. There's always chances to rework relationship. There's always chances um, to, uh, to think about our role as a wise elder in our children's lives. And uh, I thought, well, it would be fun to, to tear apart some of these movies that we know well and, and explore it from, from that perspective. I also, you know, I love what you're saying about the wise elders and, you know, I, from speaking with you and, and from different things that I've been reading and researching, I'm also really passionate about the, the importance of having role models and wise elders in your immediate circle um, and also as part of your community and how do we relate to that. Um, but I also loved, you know, when we started to talk about 80s and 90s films, remembering myself as a teenager and seeing myself on screen for the first time that it was such a big deal to see um, characters that were struggling with similar 
um, the things that I was thinking about, the things that I was struggling with, the things that, um, you know, at that time were never portrayed by people my age in any kind of media. Like, you know, kids now can't imagine that because there's so many kids on, on TV. But I remember when, when we were that age and these films were in the theaters, it was usually adults playing teenagers. And it was such a huge thing for me. I remember seeing myself on screen um, and, and, and realizing that I wasn't alone and dealing with some of the stuff that I was dealing with. So I love that we're kind of coming back to it now as a parent and taking a look at that and saying, okay, well, what was going on there? How did they end up in those situations? And, and, uh, and I think there's so much to put, to pull apart aside from, you know, our, our, um, you know, our, our love of that genre. Um, there's just so many interesting jumping off points there. Which is interesting, by the way, because uh, John Bender, uh, played by, um, w w what's his name? The actor, uh, John Bender. Hirsch? Yeah, was yeah. 25, I believe. Wow. Uh, it was only, it was Molly Ringwald and um, who played the geek? What's his name? Yeah, uh, Michael. Right. What's Can't his remember last the last name, name now. <laughs> right. So Molly Ringwald and Michael, whatever his last name was, they were, right. I think, uh, to understand dynamics with parents. But the one that I want to focus on is the opening scene. And Robert uh, made a comment saying <laughs> that he saw it yesterday. So right. he's going to be very, uh, very um, up to date on, uh, on this information. So the opening scene is Ferris is sick and his parents come in and they're just, they're looking at him aghast and they're just they're They feel so worried for him and he's sick and he can't get out of bed. Now, remember, Ferris is probably, what, what is he, Ellie? 16? Yeah, probably I would say around there. Or wait, maybe so, he was 17 because I think he was graduating, but his girlfriend wasn't. Right. So we're talking grade 12 in the States or 13. Right. Okay. Um, and his parents are looking at him like he's five or he's yeah. six. Like, oh, what's wrong with Ferris? Now, here's a question for you. First of all, Ellie, when you watch that scene and you see the, and you're a parent now, and you see the parents just poor Ferris, what, what's, what's your visceral reaction? I mean, just what, when you watch that, what are you thinking is going on? Just watching that little scene. So I'll tell you something interesting. I remember watching that scene for the first time when I was a teenager and feeling uncomfortable. Like I remember that kind of like, oh, it's so cringy. Like how, like they're kind of all over his face and they're, you know, and he's like Gaga with them. And I remember like having a visceral reaction to that scene when I was watching it. Um, and when I watch it now, it's so interesting because I see, um, you know, I know a little bit more how hard it is sometimes to forget that your kids are older. You know, I have a, a daughter now who's just turned 14 and, and part of the challenge is remembering that she's not eight anymore and it's a different way of relating to her. So I think, you know, I, when I watch that scene, I, I remember that kind of cringy feeling as a teenager. And I also like, um, it, it, it feels like, um, it feels like they're not, it's, there's some type of unreality happening when I see it. Right, right. Um, but I just want to point something out here. Uh, you know, my wife's a child psychiatrist, and uh, we both every now and then uh, work on these very complex cases uh, separately, but we talk about them. And some of the most complex cases is when a, a young person, a child or a teenager is so anxious that they, they stop going to school. So this isn't that scene. I just wanted to point that out because I think people can misunderstand the scene. This isn't that scene. Uh, this is something else that's going on here. Um, and um, what I find interesting is there's only one person in this house who knows what's up. Actually, there's two people who knows what's up. But <laughs> one is very happy with the situation and one is infuriated. Who's the person who knows the jig? They know what's going on. Who's the only person in this house that really knows what's going on? His sister. The sister. Jennifer right? Gray. The Right. The sister knows exactly what's going on and, yeah. and she is uh, um, very angry. And if any of us have siblings, we can relate to that. How do we, how do we relate to that? You know, Dr. Bowen, the kind of therapy I do was created by a man named Dr. Bowen, a psychiatrist in the 50s. Uh, he was um, one of the founders of family and marriage therapy. And one of the things he noticed in families is that we all play rigid roles, you know, um, you know, the goody two-shoes, the black sheep, the, um, the know-it-all. We play these roles. And John Hughes is very good at playing with those archetypes in these films. The question that you have to ask is, is it innate? Is it, is it neurochemical? 
what makes a goody two shoes and what makes a rebel? What makes one cousin in the family cut off from the family and what, what makes one member of the family um, bring people together? Th these right, are even questions. In the same family, you know, it's like that age old question. I don't understand. I have three kids being raised by the same parents and they're so different. What happened? Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the things Bowen spent most of his life studying. He was he was actually studying schizophrenia, but while he was studying schizophrenia in the 50s, he discovered these things. Um, and in the scene, it's actually quite um, beautiful. Robert, by the way, is correct. He just said something uh, in a note that I'm reading. He's absolutely correct. It's a combination of nature and nurture. Uh, but what I find when people talk about this, uh, often uh, they, t they pick sides. And I don't think it's a polarity argument. I think it's mm -hmm. both true. But for this, but for what's happening in this scene, I do think um, there's something about nurture or what I would say relationship that's going on. Mm -hmm. So what do you have here? You have two parents who are overly focused on their seemingly sick kid, except for the fact the sister knows he's not sick. So is it that the parents are dumb? John Hughes wants you to believe they are. I mean, it's quite clear in all his films, the parents are, Duh, right? That's all, all the parents in John Hughes films are kind of like, you know, out to lunch or uh, addicted um, in Pretty in Pink. I think the, the father is either, um, uh, he, he can't get to work. I think right, there's right. alcohol stuff. Right, which is the beginning really of all of the Disney and Nickelodeon and all of these TV sitcoms now that are for kids where the kids are always the ones solving the problems and the parents are always out to lunch and, and just silly and irrelevant. So it's interesting right. that it started in many ways in these films where the idea was there are no wise elders. The wise people are the young kids. That's right. Sorry about that. Someone is trying to contact me and I'm gonna <laughs> shut that off. Um, you know, exactly, that's exactly right, Ellie. And uh, I think, so in this scene, in this scene, what, what's going on here? So I would propose that here's a situation where these parents are driven by what we call feeling-centric parenting. Feeling-centric parenting. One's feelings orient yourself to the relationship of your child, as opposed to principle-centric parenting, where it's your principles that drive your parenting decisions. Let me give you an example. In this family, Ferris has learned, now this is important, he has learned, this didn't happen today. That's why his sister is so enraged. She's been watching this go on for a long time. Somehow Ferris has learned that if he coughs and puts the thermometer to the light bulb, as he did there with the, um, right. you know, the ellipsis palms, and he has learned <laughs> that he can, can, he can get his parents to do what he wants. He has, he has too much power in the family, somehow. And then the question is, well, how did this begin? When parents come to my office, they often see things as beginning last week. Not always, but generally things just flared up. But things don't usually just flare up. Something has changed in the family to make things so unbearable. But if you really do a good family history, things have been going on this way for a long time. And if you ask the sister, how long has your parents favored Ferris? She would say, right, as forever. long as I can remember. This has been going on forever. Right. She might say something like that. So then the question is, it's so interesting. You have to ask yourself, what is it about Ferris? Are there any clues in the film that might suggest that something is going on in this family where Ferris gets preferential treatment or more of a feeling-focused treatment than maybe the sister? And that's sort of the, the job that I do, which is part detective, part therapist, trying to understand exactly your question. Why is it that two parents can have four kids and each of the four kids have extremely different parents? Mm. Biologically, there's a, they're the same, but the parents are different for each kid. If this doesn't make sense to you, just go ask your siblings about how you were treated right. when you were teenagers and this and the other thing. Okay. I'll tell you something funny, actually. I, I did a mother-daughter program on Monday and I had twins in the program. And I remember one of the twins was complaining that the eldest always got preferential treatment. And I was like, oh, well, who's older? And she's like, oh yeah, we're never sure. <laughs> That's so funny. Like, whoever in the moment seems like the oldest is the one that gets the preferential treatment between them, which right. I thought was so funny. Well, look, I'll tell you this right now from my own, from my own experience. Um, a lot of these things happen in utero. Uh, my eldest, his name, his name is Izzy. We knew his name was going to be Izzy because we were going to name him after my uh, my Zadie, 
who was Isidore, who was the patriarch of my family. So before my son entered the world, he was being given the name of the patriarch in my family. Mm. And that means something when I say his name every single day. There, there's a connection there. My middle son has my father's name, my late father. That also means something. My third son, who I love to bits, his name is Judah. There is no real connection to family. Now, how does that play itself out in life? I'm not sure. But I can tell you this right now. My eldest was, was given the name Izzy. He was born, uh, and my dad died six weeks after he was born. So all of that plays into a certain way I look at him. And I can feel it. I actually can feel it. It's not about love. But it is about focused attention, focused attention. My kids don't get the same amount of, let's call it anxious, focused attention, good or bad. And this is true for all of your families. There is no such thing that we treat all our kids the same. It is a myth. It is just not true. Yeah. So Ferris gets this attention. Are there any clues in the film why? I'm going to propose a couple, Ellie, and you tell me what you think. Okay. The first one is gender. You can say in 2020, we're above all this kind of stuff and there is no such thing as gender and blah, blah. I could tell you right now, even with the young couples in my office who are both professionals and very progressive, there are feelings from the mother and there are feelings from the father about what gender they would like their kid to have. I can tell you that in my practice, when a young couple has two girls, the father is saying, can we just have a third, please, maybe to get the boy that, that there are strong uh, thoughts and feelings about gender in with the young couples that I work with in, in my practice, okay? So the first thing we know is that eldest, uh, eldest males have a certain sort of stature, especially in traditional families. We know in the from community, um, there are a lot of um, thoughts and feelings about eldest males, okay? And I, I think that Ferris being an eldest male was not, uh, John Hughes didn't do that on purpose. I, he didn't make the sister the eldest. He made, he made Ferris uh, uh, the eldest, okay? Uh, and the other thing, he's an eldest. So then you start asking yourself questions. Thoughts like, what was going on in the marriage when they first had Ferris, their eldest? For example, was there any miscarriages before he was born? Right. Why? Whenever there's a couple of miscarriages, especially before an eldest, when the baby comes, they're a special, special baby. Mm. There are a lot of effort and perhaps money and time and attention has been put into that child. Okay. You're looking for those kind of clues to understand what is it about these two individuals who are clearly smart, by the way. These are not, these are not, um, not smart people. You can see they're both professionals. They both do very well in their respective careers. They seem very loving and attentive parents. It's not about intelligence and it's not about communication. There is something that is getting in the way of them being played by their son and, the, right. and, the, and their like, daughter can see it. Right. So meaning for whatever reason, whatever the context is, they're not actually able to see all the parts of him. They're only seeing certain parts of him because that's what they focused on this whole time as, their, as his parents. Is that what you mean? And, and I would say, and the focus is coming from some sort of guilt or some sort of something right. that has been going on a long time in this family where when Ferris is sick, they lose their thinking and they become, oh, we have to take care of them. And the sister's watching this going, I don't get that kind of treatment when I'm sick. So the question is, why does Ferris get that, but the sister could never lift the thermometer or whatever and put it to the light? And, and that's where you have to start asking, what is it about one child that gets that sort of focused attention? And by the way, when I say attention, I mean this agnostically, positive or negative. Positive or negative focused attention will have an impact on a child's growth going forward. Okay. It's interesting. Middle children who don't get that focused attention as much generally do, how shall I say this? They have more freedom with their life choices. They might complain in therapy that they were not focused on, though. They might right. come to therapy and say, oh, mommy and daddy spent more time with, you know, my eldest right. and my youngest. Well, but youngest. They, right. right. But the, the middles might have more freedom to pick uh, their partners, uh, relationship partners. They might have more freedom to pick their careers, whereas the eldest and the youngest will have more of a focused positive or negative attention, which will impact their ability to live their lives on their own terms. I remember, Ferris, yeah. I remember you saying that in one of the talks that you gave for me a few years ago, which was like the child, often the child that's focused on the least is the one that is the least symptomatic. Right. And, I, and I always thought that was fascinating because it does speak right. to like, well, you know, you know, one of my kids, one of my sisters got so much attention and I got none, you know, and she's messed up and I'm not right. Like, you know, like that kind of thing. So I, Michelle is, Michelle commented on the chat that she's the middle child. So, and she agrees with what we're saying. So 
I think it's a really interesting premise that we think that the kid we pay the most attention to will fare better, but that that's not always the case. No, of course, it's not always the case. Um, and I, we don't want to get into that. We'll have lots of opportunity, Ellie, on, on other films to talk about um, some, uh, you know, why, uh, what are some of the other variables that come into why one parent would focus on one child or another, you know, anything from if a child is born with a medical condition, we'll get right. more focus in the children who isn't uh, eye color, hair color, uh, names they're given, right. um, a predisposition in personality. There's all these different variables, but we do know there's some good research research to suggest that there has something to do with gender and sibling position in a family. But the most important point here is that Ferris in the film is sort of seen as an anti-hero in a way. But if you actually watch him throughout the film, he's a manipulator. He lies. He lies to everybody, actually. He manipulates everyone, even his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. If you remember in the film, she calls him out about Cameron and she's like, you don't understand something about like, you don't see what he's going through with his parents. Like you don't understand. And you know what? Ferris doesn't. Right. He, he lacks a certain empathy about other people. It's all about himself. I would argue, I would postulate that this film actually is quite, um, I would tragic might be too strong a word, but Ferris is the kind of guy that while he looks like a hero, he's going to have trouble for the rest of his life as a parent. He's going to have trouble uh, with jobs. He's going to have trouble with all his bosses right. because he's going to be found out at some point with all of this lying and manipulating. And, and the, in the film, it's quite clear he was programmed this way over the years because of this focused attention his parents have. And the most interesting thing, Ellie, if I was working with this family, you know who I would want? First of all, by the way, if I was working in this, with this family, the kid that probably would be in my office would either be the sister because she was getting suspended from school right. or something, yeah. or Ferris because he got caught and he's in jail. Right. Right. The number one person I would want to speak to in this family would be the sister because she'd have the goods about some of the dynamics uh, in this family. <laughs> My hunch is the parents would say, they would look at me and they would do some version of this. I just love him. Like, right. it's just love, right? right. They, they would be blind to how they, they are operating from a feeling-centric position and they have lost their principles. Principles like, what are the rules in this house when someone gets sick? You know, Ellie, I don't know about you. In my house, it was very clear I couldn't have a grow up. And my parents never had to tell me. Right. I knew I could not bring home a marijuana plant, put it in the living room, water it. And just, you know, my parents would come home and they'd be like, what's that? Oh, it's just a marijuana I'm growing. I just knew. Somehow in my house, I just knew that would not be okay. When I was working in Vancouver, Ellie, in addictions, hmm. these kids would come to my office and they would have like huge elaborate grow ups in their house. Right. And I'd say, how did you know that was okay? And they'd be like, I don't know. It's like, they just knew it was okay. So we all know the principles and the rules and the mores in our homes, okay? And some siblings know them more and some siblings know them less. For some reason, Ferris has learned that he can do this thing and Ferris' sister has learned she can't. And again, the question becomes, why does Ferris' sister know she can't get away with it? And Ferris has been using this probably since grade six, seven. Clearly he knows what he's doing, right? right? So that's the, that's what I, you know, that's what I find so fascinating about the beginning of this film is that it really depicts um, how different kids turn out differently in families. And my argument would be, it has to do with the anxious focus that parents bring, the feeling centric focus on some of their kids and um, uh, where it's maybe more principal or less anxious focused on others. Yeah, I think it's so, I think it's so interesting because when I watch Ferris, when you think about the level of, look, I mean, part of the funniness, the humor of it is how good he is at it and how creative he is with it and how you know that kind of joie de vie he brings to you know all of his shenanigans um but when you think about it as a parent and you're watching that you're like wow these are skills he has perfected over time and probably used on his parents for a long time and now is using on teachers and principals and you know, other people in different positions of authority. So I think it's really interesting when you balance those two, you know, the humor of it with, wow, this is, there's something going on here that, that might not bode well for him in the future. 
Well, I mean, you can see it right. You can see it right now. By the way, uh, Ellie, I, you know, um, as you know, one of my subspecialties is commitment phobia or fear of commitment. Mm -hmm. So I get young people in my office, and they're let's say late twenties, early thirties. They're having trouble settling down with someone, and you could see the program that was going on. This was an issue that was going on throughout their lives. They're just in my office because it's 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 not tenable anymore. They're they're scared they'll never meet anybody. But when I ask them about how this has played out in their lives, they go all the way back to between years, sometimes even their in their childhood. Um, and so uh, while look, I, I love the I love the film, um, but I can't watch the film now the way I once did with a more um, carte blanche perspective. I, I do watch the film, and I actually have much more. Um, uh, uh, I feel more for Cameron and for Ferris's yeah. girlfriend in terms of good people. Whereas when I was a teenager, I saw Ferris as the hero. Um, right. Watching it with my family therapy psychobabbly eyes now, um, it is quite clear that Ferris is going to have a lot of problems. Uh, he's very lucky, by the way, if, he, if there was a sequel that he ended up with that woman because she, uh, she would be good for him. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Sloane is like one of the sweetest characters. And I'm glad you brought up Cameron because I'm always... You know, I remember thinking about Cameron as a, as like kids that I knew whose parents were just largely absent. And he was really, because he actually is homesick, which is kind of interesting. Like on the same day that Ferris is pretending to be sick, Cameron, his best friend, is homesick and there's not a parent to be seen. And Cameron's insisting on like, you know, staying in bed. So he has such a different experience in, in terms of no parental focus. Yeah, I mean, Ellie, do we want to, I thought Cameron would be its own show because I really think that Cameron touches on something that uh, in my third book that is uh, launching in September uh, with my late supervisor, my late supervisor used to have this term, he would repeat it over and over and over again, that is the job of parents to see, hear, and understand their children. And then he said, most of us didn't get that, meaning our parents loved us, but did they really see, hear, and understand the best within us? And, and I can tell you working with families, and this has nothing to do with love because the parents I work with, they all love their kids. They don't see, hear, and understand them though. Right. Okay? And, and it's a very painful feeling for a child to not truly feel seen for who they are, for their unique uh, neshama or quality they bring into the world. It's a very painful feeling. And this is one of the reasons why kids run to Reddit and other places where they do feel seen, heard by their peers or by another adult. I don't know if we want to wait. That's a whole other topic. Do you want to put a, a cork no, I in think, that? Well, I like where we were going with talking about um, talking about Ferris's sister. So let's come back to Cameron then. I think that's a great idea. Okay. So is there something specific you want to ask about Ferris's sister? Well, I think, you know, part of what we were, part of what you were starting to point towards was, you know, she would be the person that would understand the dynamic of everything that was going on. You know, if they were, if you were to see them in your office, she would kind of have the goods. Um, and I think, you know, what would her perspective on, like, why would she say, do you think, that Ferris gets preferential treatment? Well, well she, I mean, she's the kind of, uh, she, in my office, she'd be the kind of client that might say, if I said to her, uh, what was her name? Jenny? Ginny? Yeah. Ginny. What was her name? I'm trying to, I'm trying to find it here. I think it was Jeannie. Yeah, Jeannie. Yeah. So if I said to Jeannie, let's say they were all in my office, you know, Ferris and his parents and Jeannie, and I would say, Jeannie, what's going on with this family? She wouldn't shut up. <laughs> she would go on and on and on. And, um, and, and of course, the trick in my office anyways is how do you keep the family calm when you have a Jeannie going on and on? Because what happens is it would increase the anxiety and the parents would jump in and say, that's not true. That, that you're lying. And it would get out of like, control. Oh, Jeannie, there she goes again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's always been like this. Yeah. Um, but generally, um, my hunch is Jeannie would probably would say some version of, um, well, she said it in the film. It's, it's not fair. She said something like that. I want a new family. She says that at the beginning of the film. Because she knows that she could do no good and Ferris could do um, no wrong. And actually, it was funny, by the way, and this is so true. This is where John Hughes is brilliant. Further on in the film, who does she end up with? Who's her boyfriend? What kind of guy is he? Uh, it's the guy in the, at the police station. So she ends Yeah, up he's a, he's a, he's a criminal. The guy who just got ar arrested. Right, except for the fact that he's real. Yeah. He's earnest. You know, Ferris is all nice and washed up and he looks good. He probably smells great, right? He's in the shower with his little mohawk. I mean, he smells good. He looks good, right? But he's a manipulator and he's a liar. 
I, one might even say he's a, he's, a, he's a mini sociopath in the making, okay? <laughs> Jeannie, Jeannie might be loud and rebellious, but she knows what's up. She knows something isn't fair. She knows something stinks in this family and, and, and something just doesn't work here. And she finds someone who connects with her. That's why I always tell parents, don't break up your young adult children in their relationships because there's something powerful that is drawing them. You don't got to love your, you know, you don't got to love your child's mate. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and what I find in my office is that the parents who are really successful at breaking up those relationships will spend a lifetime of trying to repair the relationship with their child for that. So you got to be careful with that stuff. But anyways, yeah. she ends up with this guy and um, I forget how it plays out completely, but he's actually quite good for her in some ways. Um, right, and good he for has no avarice. He sort of tells her straight, like, what's your problem? Why do you care so much? And yeah. it's, it's actually very beautiful because he cuts through and she gets to experience somebody who's speaking to her for real. Right. And, and she also feels for the first time, she feels, you know, sort of loved and accepted by, by someone else. Um, look, again, you know, all of this is conjecture, Ellie. Um, I, you know, I think that, you know, we have no idea how this would all uh, play itself out. But I can tell you as a therapist, I'm always looking for the person in the family who's cut off from the family. I'm always looking for the uh, person in the family who breaks the rules. There's right. a bit of a bleep disturber. Uh, those are the people that um, are more free to share with me the dynamics in the family, where, whereas the parents, um, they're usually too anxious and too caught up in their worry for their child to be able to see accurately what's happening in the family. So you need someone from the outside, uh, another a sibling or, or a cousin or someone else in the family to be able to, to have a bit of more of an objective understanding of some of the dynamics. But um, anyways, there is no therapist in this film. And <laughs> do you want to, do you want to use the diagram that you sent me? Do you want me to pop it up on the screen and you can, Sort of break I, I tried to connect it. It didn't work. So I think it might be best. What I'll do is I'll send it to you and maybe Ellie on Facebook. Can you, um, can you throw it on Facebook as an image? We can I have it here as a PDF and I can share my screen with it if you wanted to take a look at it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. If you can show that, that'd be great. Yeah. Let's see if we can do that. Cause I just thought this was so interesting. Uh, there we go. Can everybody see that? I think that works. Okay, great. So we're not going to get into uh, too much detail here. Um, this is, you know, in, in the newsletter, I, I, I get into some more of the, uh, the, the minutia about the symbols and how, how this all operates. But what, what this shows is, um, you know, the mother and father, the straight line, um, the mother and father are harmonious. That line means harmonious in a marriage. Okay. It doesn't mean a good marriage. This is important. It means a harmonious marriage, meaning that there is no, at least in the film, conflict that we can see. And they're both focused on their son. So some of the questions as a therapist that I ask myself is, what is drawing the similar focus? Let me give you an example. Ellie, how come in the film, the mother doesn't turn to the father and go, he's playing you. He's playing you like he always plays you. Or the father never turns to the mother and says, I don't know. I don't buy it. If you watch throughout the film, even when the principal tells the mother, we have all these absenteeism, she doesn't believe him. Right, not yeah. my little Ferris. Yeah, it's, not it's my interesting Ferris. that they're both snowed. You know, usually there's like maybe one parent that kind of has an idea about it, but they're both completely sort of hypnotized by this. Actually, Ellie, no, that, that that's actually not true. No, um, yeah. in my office, some of the most complex families I work with are when they're on the same page. That's what. That's why, Ellie. You know, when I talk and I say to people, this whole idea of co um, being on the same page type parenting. Yeah. is actually anxious parenting. You might've heard me say this and parents look at me like I'm crazy. We've always been told we have to be on the same page. Right, United no. Front is like- United Front, thank you, a United right. Front. It's one of the great myths about parenting. Um, I find in um, uh, what I would call more mature or less anxious families, they, the parents aren't on the same page, but they know how to work as a team and they can learn to live with their differences, but someone has to take a leadership role on something. It's the more anxious families where one parent has to compromise on their principles for the sake of the other parent to lower anxiety, which builds in resentment and blah, 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 blah. In this case here, I ask myself a question. What is the dynamics that are leading these two people to focus on their son? So here's just a couple of ideas that I have. Number one, there's a marital problem that you can't see in the film, meaning that these two can only come together by focusing on one child. I see this in my office, Ellie, over and over again. These are the couples that come to my office, God bless them, and they have long-standing marital issues, but the only thing that they've learned how to do as a team is schlep their kid to sick kids and the hinks and here and there, and tutors, and ADHD, and they're running all over, and it's the one thing they feel bonded with as a couple. 
And right. you know, it's the, it's the old saying, Ellie, that God forbid Israel ever um, creates peace with the Palestinians. The big war is, is going to be the civil war. I mean, I, I, unfortunately, I hope it doesn't happen. But you've, this, I am not saying anything that is not known. This has been talked about uh, with uh, um, historians in Israel for a long time. That, that, you know, once we lose our common enemy that's external to us, we have to deal with the common enemy that's internal to us. Well, I just right? spoke to a real estate agent yesterday who said the amount of people sh that are calling her because they're getting separated or divorced right now because they've been stuck in the same house together, not able to go out and go to work and go to the gym and go to programs and go to this. She said it's unbelievable. She said it's quite something. It's, it's Yeah, that's being mirrored, by the way, in China. Uh, the divorce rate went right up as soon as things opened up after lockdown. And there's another country where that was also, I didn't hear that, by the way. I haven't seen the stats for North America. Um, I know that the colleagues in my world talk about this as the togetherness force, that too much togetherness force buckles families and buckles marriages. And it's funny, Ellie, because we live in a community where, you know, people talk about community and, and empathy and love and connection. And, and what people miss all the time, and I can understand, uh, I can appreciate why people miss this, is that what most people have in most families is too much of this, is too much of this. The couples in my office that come in and they're distant, it's not because they were originally distant, it's because they were fused like an eagle mass like this. And if I do my work properly, I could separate some of that and, and, and it had people learn to breathe within their, their marriage. But the point is in this film here, it's quite clear the parents are focused on affairs. My first clinical hypothesis would be there's something in the marriage that led to this anxious focus on, on affairs. Um, the, uh, the squiggly line is a conflict between these siblings. And here's my only thought about this. This is a situation where if um, Ferris doesn't grow up, and something doesn't change in this family. These are the kind of families I see in my office where the siblings are in their 30s and 40s and stop talking to each other. And they go back to their family of origin story. Like this is where Jeannie would be in my office and go, I had to cut off my brother because he's, he's just, he's too much. He was, he was toxic. That's what I hear in my office like. He's right. toxic for me. And if these two, if these two, if, if one of them can't figure out that there is something else going on in this family other than just favoritism, they could bring that conflict into their um, uh, adult years. And this is where you know, parents have to be uh, uh, to, to watch this. Whenever you see sibling conflict and you think it's just about the sibling stuff, it usually is a general family dynamic that's going right. on. Okay. Right. Um, and, um, and the last thing, we're not going to get into this though, we can get into a different time, is, the, tr is the, the triangle that you see there, right? Mom and dad are connected, but focus on, on Ferris. We'll talk about triangles in, in another episode. So a lot, it's funny, Elliot, one little scene in a movie, yeah. it really illustrates a lot of uh, dynamics that I think we see in all it, the families I work with anyways. Yeah. And I, the thing I love, I love about this diagram is it really shows, you know, all focus points to Ferris whether it's conflict or whether it's just plain attention, you know, all roads point to Ferris. So he becomes the person who is the showboat guy, you know, like he's used to being the point of attention, whether it's, you know, his sister hating him or his parents, you know, totally adoring him. Um, you know, it's, it's a very interesting position for him to be in. And yeah, if you imagine like, okay, so what does that person look like? 10, 15 years down the road? How do you be in a relationship when you're used to being the person who's totally focused on? Um, That's right. Interesting. Should I, hang on, I'm gonna stop sharing this diagram here. Okay. Okay, so how should we move with this? Move with what? How should we go with this like from here? We have about 15 minutes left or so. If people have if people have any questions, they can ask questions. Um, we can tackle those. We can. So, you know. so it, uh, my so Elisa posted something interesting where she said, you know, it's interesting. It sounds like my brother, and he no longer speaks to anyone anymore. So here we have kind of an illustration of what you're talking about. Yeah, um, you know, I think i don't know how old this individual is but um i think that um it is incumbent upon all adults when they leave their family to work on cutoff in our families so whenever you see a cutoff in a family let's say with a sibling or a parent or an uncle or a cousin just define cutoff just for people yeah what that means so i was this elisa who just yeah who wrote that so um, it's sort of what Elisa is, is talking about, that there is someone in the family that stops speaking to other people in the family as a way of preserving themselves. They would, they would justify the cutoff 
cutting people out of their lives and their family because it helps calm them down. They would say they're toxic. They would say, I feel bad when I'm with them. But the research seems to be very clear about this. And I see this clinically in my office that, that there is a huge price one pays for cutting your family out of your life. A huge price. And not only a huge price in this generation, the cutoff begets cut off. So we find that in families where there's cutoff, you can almost see it uh, through generational lines. That's why I do those diagrams. It's one of the reasons why. Meaning like so it sets up a pattern. So like in each generation, then there'll be, somebody will not be speaking to each other kind of all the way down. Is that what you mean? That's right. You learn it through osmosis, right? If you grew up in a family that screams when people get angry, you're going to be more tempted to scream. It just, it, it, you, you, it's, it just, it gets into your sort of emotional DNA. It's just how you right. operate. And cutoff is the most extreme way we handle anxiety in our families or difficulties in our families. The problem with cutoff is that it leads um, to a whole host of uh, other issues. Um, you know, um, one could say that divorce is one version of a cutoff in some cases. So there are marriages in my office, they're married for like nine months and they just stop they just end the marriage after nine months. No effort, no work to improve the marriage. And then all I have to do is look at the family. You could see there's cut off all over the place. It's sort of, it's, um, it's just something that you reflexively go to because it's what you've learned. Right. Uh, and it's, so- it's our coping skill. How I cope with conflict is to cut someone off. That's right, that you don't have any other options. And, and by the way, you've heard other family members justify it as those toxic people in my family. Right. Um, but I think that um, uh, people who spend even a cursory amount of time reading about cutoff will, it, it's eyes wide open, especially if you want kids, because um, again, cutoff begets, begets cutoff. And I think there's also psychosomatic symptoms that, that play into cutoff, which we're not going to get into now. Um, so I think it's very important for, um, I was speaking about in this case, you know, Ferris and Jeannie, that when they become adults to, um, to, to think about um, the old stories that led to this that might not be true anymore, that we're adults now and we can be more mature about this and we can find new ways of managing our differences. And by the way, as siblings, we can find new ways of managing our differences growing up in the family because I think it's absolutely legitimate for one sibling to look at another sibling and say, you had it differently. And that's true. Any sibling that says, no, 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 we were all, mom and dad loved us all the same, you're just too right. sensitive is discounting the very real possibility that no, your sibling, yes, you had two parents and yes, or one or whatever, that they're both the same biological parent, but you had a fundamentally different experience growing up than your sibling did. It is very important. Um, and I think that as adults, it's so important. Um, our lives are much more enriched when we have a connection with our siblings. Um, parents and cousins and uncles and aunts. The research is clear. Um, mental health issues go, phew, they just skyrocket for young adults and adults who have cut off from their families. Hmm. There's a comment here from, uh, from Michelle she, who says um, she has two male family members of different generations and that were paid a lot of attention to and then later distanced themselves and were either cut off. Um, and or and did it themselves as conflict grew between siblings. So she's saying it sounds like Michelle, what you're saying is you're seeing that generational cutoff happen. That it's not just in one generation, but that it plays all the way down. Um, what are some of the things if cutoff is a coping mechanism in your family system? What are some of the ways? What are some of the things you can do to change that? How do you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think um, uh, just piggybacking on what Michelle has said, it, it really infuriates me. I was going to say sad, but sad is too light. It actually gets me angry to see that some of my colleagues even support cut off. I'll, I'll have clients come to my office and say, but my last therapist said I shouldn't speak to my mother because she was toxic. I was like, yeah, like, you know, when I hear therapists supporting children cutting off from their parents, I just find it maddening. That usually means, by the way, the therapist has gotten so anxious listening to the family story that they have lost all sense of objectivity about what. But are, um, but are you saying that because you feel like that's where the work is? Like, what is the, you know, if it's a toxic relationship, what do you do there? Well, first of all, um, I don't use that word in my practice. I find that it's just laden with too much stuff. I don't even know what that means, by the way, because Ellie, here, here's the truth. What's toxic to you is not toxic to me. Right. Okay. So what people will say, they'll, they'll always use, uh, what do people, uh, you know, often, you know, people will say, or at a workshop, people will give me this, these extremes, but what about like my father put a knife to my throat and was going to, <laughs> so yes. So here, here's the line. Here's the line. 
when there is physical violence, it is important to get distance and safety is number one. But guess what, Ellie? You know how often that comes up in my practice? Right. Once every 15 years. Now, granted, you might say, but I, you know, Ellie, I even worked at non-for-profit agencies where I worked with some pretty vulnerable populations. Violence in families isn't as common as people think where, you know, heads are being put through walls and stuff. Cutoff usually is an emotional thing. It's emotional, you know. Um, my my grandparents gave one side of the family more of the inheritance than the other. We had to cut them out of our lives because how could they do that? It's that kind of stuff. Right. It's an emotional right. thing. Yeah. Um, so the first thing is um, most people who cut off don't even know it's a problem. They actually think it's a very, very legitimate solution. It's been supported by their friends, right? They've had friends and peers and perhaps clergy say to them, it's best if you cut this person out of your life. So in my office, when it's brought up, I have to be very sensitive and I have to be very um, empathic in terms of they, this is not my story, it's theirs. But at some point, a part of the therapy I do is more akin to coaching than therapy, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think it's, I think the efficacy in my therapy is, is more powerful than longer standing, you know, years and years about talking about your mother and your father. Uh, pretty quickly with my clients, I will educate them. I will share information with them in terms of educating themselves about the ramifications of cutoff. And then I just ask them after they read it in terms of um, what do they think about the research, about, about what this is most of my clients will come back and they'll say some version of, I know it's wrong. I just don't know what to do. Right. Right. Almost always, Ellie. Very few come back and say, yeah, I've read it. No, it's best that my, my it's best that my brother's out of my life. What they'll say is, even before I read this, I intuitively knew this was true. I just hate this aunt or I don't know what to do. I get so infuriated with this person. And then, then the work begins. Then the work what? begins in terms of how do you broach that cutoff? I love that too. And I, and I think it goes so well with a lot of what, um, like I love to read about and learn and teach in terms of, you know, we are not just the chosen people as Jews, but we're supposed to be the choosing people. And if you feel you have no alternative in any situation, then you're not thinking creatively yet, right? You're not recognizing there's always multiple choices because we have free will and we have to just sort of think outside the box, but it's like, if the only choice is cut off, then are we really, are we just on automatic or are we really thinking through what all the possibilities could be? It's one of the things, Ellie, that drives me crazy about this new, um, uh, this new way of off the derif uh, stories that became so popular. I think there's only one of the authors who reconnected with their family, mm -hmm. but most of the stories glorify cutoff. And, it, and it's, it's very troubling because as a culture, it gets embraced and as a, as a hero's journey, you're, you're saying F you to your family and charting your own course. And um, uh, I think that it's very problematic. And I think, because I think it touches on all of our anxiety about the tensions we feel in our family, that there's a fantasy that if I could just have a new family, you know, right. if I could just do it over again. Um, and and I, I call that, um, you know, adolescent thinking, right? F fantastical thinking, you know, there's another world out there of, you know, I always, I often tell my clients, if they, depending on, on their sense of humor, you know, they'll say, what if I married that person? Or what if my mother, I said, yeah, if I had wings, I'd be a butterfly. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'd be nice. I can fly around yeah, my can, living room. You can think that way, but it's not going to solve the problem that's happening right now. Well, it's, it's what it's, 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 and God bless teenagers. I, I love working with teenagers, but it's what they do with the world, right? You know, if I was the president, if I was the prime minister, right? right I would do that. This is how, you know, it's funny, Ellie, because we're into this right now. If you want to hear how this plays itself out, um, not cut off, but immaturity, listen to how people talk about coronavirus. Mm, yeah. Right. Oh, this should have been done. And that, that should have been done. And this should have been done. It's like, oh, you're all full. Complex situations don't have easy answers. They only have some, as you say, options, right? And you got to pick the right option that works best for all these different variables. And you only know in retrospect time if you are right or wrong. Right. There is no perfect option. You know, it's as if one of us has the perfect option with coronavirus, but I'm not sharing it with you. Right, because yeah, it's 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 so it's right. so maddening, and it's very it's very uh, so I, I would say immature thinking about this whole thing. These are very complex issues, and families are complex. Mm -hmm. um, but again, um, I think that uh, anybody that even does a cursory reading about cutoff in families and relationships um, would think carefully about going forward uh, and sustaining the cutoff without even giving some thought 
to maybe this is something I want to invest in because this might not be good for me and it definitely won't be good for my kids. I want to just address quickly, I know we only have a few minutes, but Maureen was asking, what about uh, someone who's a narcissist who's emotionally difficult to deal with? Is there a justified cutoff with someone who would be described, say, as a narcissist? So uh, once again, um, one of the lovely things about not having to work at CAMH or CMHA or any of the other places, with my lovely people, by the way, and mm -hmm. move myself out of the medical model is I don't have to use terms, uh, the, the, um, the uh, personality disorder terms. Um, so I like to see people on a continuum of anxiety. And on one level are people who are, you can call them psychotic or very, very, very anxious. And on the other level is the fictional people who, who don't have any anxiety. I don't know those people. So we're all on it. We're, we're, we're all on a continuum. Okay. And we all have, let's call them quirks. Okay. Um, so what I'm hearing when someone says to me, because this happens in my office a lot, right? What if I'm married to a narcissist or what if I'm, so first of all, and this is going to be a bitter pill for, um, uh, I, I don't want to pick on anyone in particular, but this is always a bitter pill to swallow. We pick our partners for very powerful reasons. There are not accidents in terms of who we invite into our lives, who orbits into our life. So whenever I hear someone say, um, what do I do because I married so-and-so or what do I do because my friend is the first thing I'm thinking about is and I don't say this out loud I find a way to do this that's a little bit more um, sensitive is what does that say about you mm. you see because Ellie you know what's so fascinating about doing the work that I do if I'm working with someone long enough and they end enough marriages and they're on their ninth marriage right I get to sit there and watch them come in with that sort of like the, what is it the cat who ate the canary grin and go okay it's me <laughs> <laughs> you know, like if I work with them long enough throughout right. like those eight or nine marriages, right, uh, right up until the six marriages, they, they keep thinking it's them, right? Okay. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. We tend to invite people into our lives for meaningful reasons. I don't think there are accidents in terms of who, who we invite into our lives. It's the same thing, Ellie, my, the clients in my office who get fired from every job. And for each firing, they believe it's the culture. It's the toxic culture. It's the right. bosses. And right. what, what, I, what, what, I, what I'll say to them, and I will say this to them, I'm like, you know, it's interesting because not all my clients get fired. And they'll look at me and they'll say, oh, you don't know. You don't know my industry. I'm like, no, no, I do have a couple of people in your industry, actually. And no, yeah, it's just actually, it's factually not true that not everybody gets fired. And, and it's, it's really important to understand that, right. yes, there are real people out there who do bad things. Yes, absolutely. And, and there are um, workplaces that are very anxious and perhaps not a good fit for you. Okay. But right. what you're looking for in your life is the patterns that you get caught in, what I call the gridlock, how you get gridlocked into these relationships. Right. Um, once again, if safety, if physical safety is an issue, or if there's some line that's constantly getting crossed, yes, you have to do due diligence and protect yourself. Barring that, I would say, um, do you see any patterns, not just in this relationship, but in previous relationships that can help you grow in a certain way? Because the effort to change other people, right, sort of the narcissist in our lives, um, I just never found that worked so well. So meaning accepting that this person has a certain level of anxiety. So rather than, say, labeling them a narcissist, you're saying they have a certain level of anxiety. They have their own quirks of how they deal with that. And if you're in relationship with that person, you're either going to figure out how to navigate that and understand why you're in relationship with them. Is that more or less? No, very I, I, I'm actually saying it's even deeper. It's, it's, it's deeper than that in terms of reciprocity, reciprocity. So either you believe relationships are cause and effect, meaning Ellie, I do something to you and you either feel bad or good. That, right. That's cause and effect. That yeah. you're just an innocent bystander and I do something to you, Ellie. Right. And just it's either your good luck if it's good and it's your bad luck if it's bad. Right. Or you believe like the whole experience of like feeling like a victim. Like this person was bad to me, therefore I was victimized. Right. Exactly. Or you believe in reciprocity. I happen to believe in reciprocity. What that means is something happens in me. You, you, you do something to me, Ellie, by your personality, which I send back to you, which that you have a reaction to, which you send back to me. And I send back to you and back and back and back and back and, back, and it's sort of emotional ping pong. Okay. And it can create a lot of reactivity in people. You know, Ellie, it's always interesting to me whenever someone in my office, um, someone comes in and uh, I start off with one individual in a marriage and they say that my partner's a narcissist. And I'm like, okay. And they tell me, and the stories always sound horrible, by the way, they're always horrible stories. And they, they are, but it's not like they're not horrible. They're horrible stories. And then I say, you know, at some point it would be good to bring your partner in. And they do. There isn't one case I can think of, Ellie, where I haven't seen reciprocity. You know what I mean? But you, you, you get what I mean? Meaning, there, the, meaning the partner who is complaining about 
their partner being a narcissist is also explore like showing behaviors that someone else could can like perceive as a narcissistic behavior that I see as what Harriet Lerner calls the dance. As soon as the other partner comes in, right? I don't see an innocent person married to a narcissist. You know what I see? An elegant dance, a dance of two anxious people <laughs> manifesting their immaturity in a very like that, 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 and they do a dance. Da. Yeah, and it's a dance. And Harriet Lerner, by the way, if you look at her books, she called it the dance of anger, the dance of intimacy, the dance of mother-daughter relationship. She used the word dance on purpose. She borrowed it from Bowen, by the way. But she used the word dance to suggest that we aren't doing things to people. We are dancing with people. We are, and if we don't see our part in the dance, we will forever live our lives looking outside of ourselves as at the toxic people, the bad people, okay? And it's a really different way of seeing things. This doesn't, this doesn't mean you should stay in a marriage if you want to get it. That's not what I'm talking about. It doesn't mean you should keep your friend if they keep stealing from you. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is getting real with yourself and honest with yourself and say, have I ever been here before? Does something about this feel familiar? Or is this the first time I'm in a relationship like this? I don't know anyone like that. <laughs> no one. Ellie, Ellie, I've been doing right. this job for close to 30 years. I don't right. know one person like that, if they're honest, if they're honest. Right. Yeah, or unless they're like five and they're talking about their parents. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like, you know, what, what, why, you know, that, that's right. Yeah, everybody else in the block gets popsicles. Why can't I have a popsicle? Sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Wow, it's so fascinating. It's amazing. And I love that, you know, again, the Bowen, you know, plays out such, um, you know, such a, a Jewish concept, which is like, whatever's in front of you is for you. So if the, you know, if this relationship is difficult, what is it about myself that I can develop and grow and understand? Like, if I don't want this pattern to continue, I'm the common denominator, that I have the power to change the, you know, the pattern in some way, even if it's the other person's behavior that's uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, uh, when Bowen died, um, excuse me, when Bowen died, um, uh, he gave a conference. I think he gave a talk three days before he died. He had lung cancer and he was still speak. He was as productive right until the day he died. Very interesting guy, Dr. Bowen. But what he said to the, the room full of clinicians and therapists, he said to them, um, you have all, you have all of my work. You have all of my work now go do with it as you will. Like he gave them their, his blessing. He's like, I dedicated my life to this stuff. And, and that, and that's sort of what he would say to his families that, you know, that was his message to clinicians, which is you have generations, you have inherited generations of pain and you've, you've inherited generations of assets in your family. Go forth and do your best with it. Mm. It's such a beautiful, I just love that. And I think it, it plays so nicely with, with, um, you've heard me say this before, the Jewish concept of a psychological messianic sort of thing, which is that. All these generations before have been trying to, to get at this knot. There's a knot in your family. Each generation is trying to undo the knot. And Bowen said that we inherit the knot and it's our choice in terms of what we want to do with that knot. And that's what he was saying to the people like three days before he died. I'm giving you all of my life's work. Go do the best with it. And um, yeah. Beautiful. It's like such a hopeful message because even if there is systematic things you know, through generations, there is the possibility to to change it for the next generation after you, for our kids. That's right. Which is That's so right. beautiful. That's right. Okay, which brings us back to Ferris <laughs> in terms of, like, I, I think it's just been so fascinating to think about, um, you know, it, it, in these 80s films, who would these people be in 10 years? And to think that, you know, the outcomes for Cameron and Sloan and Ferris and Jeannie um, you know, even though we loved the characters in one way as kids, we see them so differently now through the eyes of parents in terms of what we would, you know, what we would hope they would understand about themselves in order to become like um, healthy and productive. Well, Ellie, and, that, and I guess that's, you know, I mean, just to end the call on this point, that's Ellie why I think you and I have been talking about this. One of the impetus for me to do this with you is that I, I don't think adults do that. I think what I'm hoping is that our calls will bring to will bring to attention a new way of thinking about these films. I actually think most adults watch these films the way they watch them as teenagers, you know? Right. Um, so I just wanted to, you know, I, I thought these conversations with you would elevate um, the viewing and the thinking about these films from a different perspective in terms of the generational component and how they uh, impacted um, the, the character and the personality of these teenagers. 
Love it. Amazing. Thank you so much, Avram. I, I, I'm so excited. Should we do something about Cameron next week? Well, how about this? We'll, we'll touch base this week and um, we either pick a new film or what, why don't we get to solicit some uh, feedback? If people want to hear about Cameron, um, okay. we can't. Because Cameron like on is the, the chat, On the chat, people are saying they want to hear about Cameron, which okay, makes so me happy because do... I love him. He's such a great character. I mean, the film, the film that I cannot wait to dig in with you is Pretty in Pink because yeah. I think some of the dynamics in that film are just beautiful. They, they, they actually give me shivers up my spine, especially the, the mother and the father and the daughter. But yes, uh, we can do Cameron next time. Okay, sure. so let's do Cameron next week and then we'll move okay. on to Pretty in Pink. Cause yeah, I'm happy. Fantastic. Well, awesome. Thanks for joining Thank guys. Thanks so much everyone. Have a great week and see you next week. Bye-bye.